Thank you, Danny. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn to the book of Proverbs chapter 12. And uh, the last time uh, we were in Proverbs together, of course, I I didn't preach last week because I had just been getting over being sick. Um, We uh, talked about the uh, virtuous woman versus a wicked woman. And I looked at and began to show you how important character studies are in the Bible to uh, unlock not only great stories about people, but the great principles of life uh, through the men and women uh, in the Bible. We talked about biblical profiling, uh, how that in life in general, that's exactly what happened. The FBI, I'm sure our own police department and the CIA, they all use profiling. And uh, they get down the traits of a person who has some kind of particular uh, crime that they're trying to uh, solve or catch. And um, they realize that, that all of those people that do those crimes always fall into the same pattern. And so they build a profile case. And they can pretty much tell by uh, the way something happens uh, the kind of person uh, that they're looking for. It's incredible the way they do it. And, uh, you know, using a biblical profile... You do the same thing. In the Bible, you follow the patterns of human nature, and they'll always give you the exact situation that you're in or you're up against. Uh, You know, people will be different in many respects. Some are tall, some are short, uh, some have blue eyes, green eyes, uh, you know, brown eyes. Some uh, have blonde hair or dark hair, uh, and many different ethnic groups uh, that make up uh, the human race. But human nature is always the same. It doesn't matter if you're in 4004 B.C. or, or uh, 2015 A.D. We get the idea that things change uh, through time. And many things do change. Society changes, you know, languages changes, countries come and go, nations come and go. But one of the steadfast things that never changes, and because of it, um, you can figure all this stuff out, is human nature. The fact that human nature does not change, and you have an absolute standard that defines human nature and profiles it, the Word of God, uh, the footsteps of life, or what I like to call the the DNA, spiritual DNA uh, of people. You know, we have in our world today fortune tellers, you know, tea leaf readers, uh, people who can read tarot cards, uh, people who can tell uh, supposedly your future. In every daily newspaper across this country, they have your horoscope literally a horoscope, yeah, in most people's lives. Uh, you, you, you look at the future by, by looking at the alignment of the stars, and you know uh, what shine you are. And, uh, you know, a lot of people think that finding a mate is a good deal. Uh, you know, what sign are you? Well, if your sign is compatible with the other person, that means you're going to have a good relationship. John Knox Village, you find it all the time. They ask, the older folks ask what their sign is, and it's blue cross or blue shield in those cases. But, but it's, a, it's a thing where, you know, if a person could really do that, of course, we know that they can't. The Bible calls it the monthly prognosticators. Um, the Bible uh, makes very clear that that can't happen. You know, but if it could happen, you know, if a person could really do that, I mean, they'd be worth millions and millions and millions of dollars, knowing how any given situation will turn out. But really, the truth of the matter is that the, the, the aspect that makes a very good counselor, someone who is very good with working with people in the Bible, um, is the ability to tell that person's future, the outcome of events uh, in your life based on what you do or what you don't do with Bible principles. 
in the Bible, in the Old Testament, you'll find that when the nation of Israel got all of the implement that God gave them, uh, they're told to make this, they're told to make that, they're given instructions how to fix this, make this, make that. But you're going to find that within the nation of Israel, there's one thing that they had that, that you'll never find any instructions for. God gave it to them. And in the Bible, it's called a unum in the thunum. And uh, there's a lot of mystery about it. You know, people are asking all the time what it is, what it means. Uh, and yet, when you go through the Bible, you'll find that the words unum and thunum means lights and perfection. And it was a device that God gave the nation of Israel. And you find them going to it several times uh, when they have a question. They're not sure what to do. They're not sure which way they should go or they have a question about this or that. The Bible shows you very clearly that they go to this unum and the thunum, and I don't really know how it worked exactly, but they would ask it the question, and it would give them the answer somehow. It's an incredible thing in the Bible. Uh, the ability to be able to take human nature and the patterns of human nature, and then by using the Bible, our lights in perfection. And the unum and the thunum is nothing more than a picture in the Old Testament of what the Bible was going to be. Whatever questions you have about life, circumstances, situation that you're in, you can find the answer by going to the book that is lights and perfection, the Word of God. The difference is between me and a soothsayer that a soothsayer, a fortune teller, will only tell you what is good is going to happen. She'll make your day. Uh, she'll never get, make a lot of money if she tells you the bad things that are going to happen in life. She'll tell you that your life is going to go on forever. And you'll be killed the next day. But then who cares? You won't matter anyhow. She'll tell you the fact that you're going to win the lottery or that the person you're thinking about marrying is the right person. Uh, she makes her living by lying to you under the guidelines of she can look into the future. The difference between her and me is I'll tell you what's bad that's coming your way. You don't just need to hear what's going good your way. I think one of the things that this great preacher, Joe Olstein, why he's so successful is that he never preaches on anything negative. It's always good. Whatever you're going through, there's going to be an end to it because of the fact that, uh, you know, that uh, God's just doing something for you. He leaves, and I understand that's true in a sense, but he leaves out the fact that, you know what? You can make some wrong choices in life and make some bad decisions in life, and you're going to pay for it the rest of your life, and God is not going to come down and fix it, see? But he... He, he wouldn't fill that auditorium. He'd have a crowd like I got. <laughs> you learn the principles. And then you watch the uh, associate pattern that comes along with it. And the outcome is totally predictable. For instance, you marry an unsaved person, or you marry someone who is non-committed Christian, and uh, the outcome is going to be totable, totally predictable, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's not going to work out for you. You know, you start to hang out with the wrong crowd and, and take the things of God out of your life and replace it with worldly things, family things, friends, and all of the things that are outward. Totally predictable. Psalms chapter 1 and book of Proverbs as we're studying it. You know, in your own personal life, you lose your spiritual insight into things and start missing church. Finding every excuse, and in your life, uh, the outcome will be totally predictable. And if you have kids, it's going to be totally predictable what's going to happen to them. Psalms 127.4. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Your children will hit the target in life that you launch them to. It's as simple as that. You don't need tea leaves. 
You don't need a palm reader, a horoscope. You have an absolute book that contains the principles that will make you or break you. And a pastor or a worker or a minister can see it coming long before it gets here. That's the value of the Bible. Simply a wise man versus a foolish man based on what you do with, you know, with the book of life. You know, over the years, I, many times I, I've seen it coming in people's lives. Many, many, many times. Thousands of times. And, and thousands of times I wanted to pull that person aside and, and try to help them see where they were headed. I wanted, I felt, you know, I cared for them and loved them, and I wanted to pull them aside and say, hey, let me tell you something. What you're doing here is going to really have some disastrous results. You know, kind of read the tea leaves for them. Show them uh, where this is headed uh, many times with them or with their children. But you know what? There's no way that you can do that. I've had people all my life say, hey, look, Bob, if you ever see me getting out of line and getting out of track and getting off track, you come and say something to me. That works and lasts about as long as it goes out of their mouth. Because once you start going down the wrong road, your attitude changes. Now you don't want to hear that. See, that's just a pattern of human nature. See, that's just the way it works. So, I mean, it doesn't work. People don't want to hear it. By that time, they don't want my counsel or Bible counsel. They're getting it someplace else now. And it always leads to tragedy. This is the reason why character studies, uh, I think, are so important in the Bible because they will show us ourselves what we really are and what we're really like. And when you have the checklist of a wise man or a foolish man, which is found in the book of Proverbs, I gave them to you a couple of weeks ago, it will warn you when you get off track. I marvel at all the new gadgets that come out. These new GPSs are absolutely incredible. I mean, they got them now that, uh, I mean, they're, ah, they're just like watching television. They got ones now where you're driving and you get on the exit. I don't know how they do this. You got an exit coming up right on the side of the screen. The actual picture in real time of the exit shows up, and that's knowing what you know. I mean, you, gotta, you get lost with a GPS today. You got to be brain dead or something along the line someplace. <laughs> I mean, they got it now where it knows what the speed limit is where you're at. And when you go over the speed limit, four or five miles, you get this little voice saying, warning, warning, this little woman who, warning, warning, warning. You make a wrong turn and boy, it starts flashing. And again, this little lady who lives in that little box says, warning, 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 turn around here. You're going the wrong way. Go here. My GPS, I got the extra feature. Sometimes she just laughs at me. Now, Bible principles through character studies will really do the same thing in a spiritual sense that your GPS does in a, in a physical sense. Because in both cases, you have a choice. When you're driving down the road and you get that little voice coming on there saying, warning, warning, you're going too fast and you ignore it, you're probably going to get a ticket. And if you're going the wrong direction and you don't pay any attention to it, you're going to wind up being someplace you probably never wanted to be. And spiritually speaking, ignoring the warnings in the Bible, the principles that tell you you're going the wrong way in life, you're going down the wrong road, you're doing the wrong things, it'll get you in life where you never want to be in life. When it comes to the patterns, profiles of human nature, nothing is easier to spot than a Christian who has lost that joy, joy, joy down in their hearts. I mean, they stick out like a sore thumb. 
It's easy to see the fire that they once had has now uh, been put out. And that's why people, you know, when they get to that point, they start missing church. Simple patterns. Simple patterns of getting out of the Word of God and getting out of God's house will develop into a lifestyle, will develop into bad habits, and in time will develop into strongholds in our lives. Uh, You look at a woman. That's been our sub-theme here over the last couple of weeks, a virtuous woman versus a wicked woman. And a a woman will have a natural beauty, and then then she'll take, do things that enhance that natural beauty. I mean, you, you enhance what's already there. And, and let me say this, you know, I know that there's some churches out there that think that women shouldn't wear makeup and, and all of those stuff. I get that, and I realize there's a balance to it all. But I want to say, to enhance your beauty with makeup, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. You're going to find that the problem comes in when you've got to go through a total reconstruction, and it's very obvious. I think the two things in the world, one of them's tragic and one of them's funny. I think one of the most tragic things is to see a parent who have a 13-year-old who lets her dress and look like she's 20. And I think the funniest thing is an 80-year-old who's trying to dress and look like she's 20. <laughs> the wicked woman of Proverbs paints her face, Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 7. In fact, in, in 1 Kings 9 verse 30, when Jezebel, uh, Jehu's coming to see her, she runs in a bathroom and she paints her face. And it's the same way with our Christian lives. You know what? When you got saved, you have a natural beauty that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's an obvious beauty. And it's okay to enhance that beauty. It's okay to enhance what's natural. But you know what? When we get out of fellowship and we're on the wrong road, You have to do a total reconstruction of your Christian life to pass off as the real thing in life, in Christianity. And it becomes very obvious that it's not natural. You can't hide it. I mean, there is nothing more beautiful and and precious and better than the natural beauty that comes from God. And you and I can't fake that. Most women wouldn't think of coming to church, though I would think it would be fine because I think that all of you are so naturally beautiful that makeup's a waste of time for you. I think that, <laughs> that, that but most of you would never, never consider coming to church without putting on some makeup, doing a makeup, makeover. That's fine. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when a Christian looks in that spiritual mirror in the morning, and you know that it's going to take Donnie's construction company to get you through that Sunday, you just turn around and go back to bed. That old spiritual looking glass will get you every time. Now, character studies reveal those things about ourselves. We see ourselves in character study. That's really the number one value for them. And you've heard me say many, many times that there's seven names in the Bible that God changes. And in the Bible, when God changes one of those people's names, it's always a tremendous, significant spiritual um, part of their life. Five of them are really good and two are really bad. 
But in each case, good or bad, it shows us that, that something changed in their life. When God changed Abram's, hand, Abram's name to Abraham, it signifies something drastically, spiritually changing in his life. When he changed Jacob's name to Israel, it shows that there's something drastically has now happened in his life that God said, okay, I'm going to change that guy's name based on that great spiritual event that had just took place in his life. And it's an incredible thing. Now, I want to talk about the two bad here for a moment, and I want to show you something here uh, dealing with character studies and where we're at with our spiritual unum and athunum, our GPS. In 2 Kings chapter 12, you have a guy by the name of uh, Jehoash. And God changes his name to Joash. Now, when you look it up, Jehoash means fire for Jehovah. But Joash, on the other hand, just means fire. Now, there's a great character study. There's something that you and I can learn from in our lives through that character study. This guy starts out doing good things. Then he turns and attacks the man of God that God sent to him to give him the word of God. He also winds up killing some of the man of God's families, a nice Christian guy. Now, you talk about a character study of why some of God's people uh, uh, start out good, start out on fire for God, and then have a flame out. Boy, it's studies like this. And, and there's two verses in the Bible that show you why. You know what I found over the years? When you and I get out of fellowship, you don't need 20 verses to figure out why. Usually one, maybe two will do the job just fine. I've had people all the time come to me and they'll say, well, I, want, I don't believe this in the Bible, and I'll give them a verse, and they'll say, give, I need another verse. I hit the road, man. You know what? If you don't accept the one verse, you'll never accept the second one. Amen. I mean, it's that simple. If one verse isn't good enough for you to fix your problem, a thousand won't fix your problem. You know why? You don't want to fix the problem. That's how it works. Now, the first verse here is in 2 Kings chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. And it says here, And Jehoash did that what was right in the sight of the Lord. All the days wherein Jehodiah, the priest, instructed him. Ah, here comes the problem. But the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense in high places. Uh, chapter uh, 12, going a little on down here, going along with these verses, says that he took the holy, dedicated things of God. And he literally gave them to the, to the Gentile nation, to the kings, to the world. The first thing we see that his problem was that even though he did a lot of good things, he wasn't totally separated. He hadn't completely made that break with the world. He kept the high places. That's where they burned incense to Baal. He, uh, he, uh, he didn't take away uh, all the burnt incense in the high places. He kept some of the things of the world in his Christian life. And it got him. The second verse is 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 22. And here it says, thus Joash, oh, his name's been changed now, see, Thus Joash the king remembered not the kindness which Jehodiah his father had done to him, but slew his son. And when he died, he said, The Lord look upon it and require it. 
Now there's a second thing. He forgot. He forgot how the man that God gave him had been there for him and helped him and showed him kindness. Danny preached last week a great message out of uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 about the seven things you add uh, when you get saved. Uh, virtue coming on down the line. And it was interesting when he got down there, it says brotherly kindness. It doesn't say brotherly love. And most people would look at that and not even catch that and not even wonder why it didn't say brotherly love. It didn't say brotherly love because brother love, you see, love, love is an emotion. Kindness is an act. You can say you love somebody and not mean it. But you will never show kindness to somebody unless you truly love them. So he takes the word love out because that's such a cheap word today. I love my shoes. I love my car. I love my house. But you can't show those things kindness. You can't show your shoes kindness unless you polish them. But even then, it's an adamant object. We can go through life saying, I love this and I love that. You can see you and you say, hey, brother, hi, sister, I really love you. But you don't. Love is not defined by what you say. Love is defined by the acts of kindness that you do because you really love somebody. Oh, it's tremendous stuff. I had a preacher one time that I worked with for a number of years, and uh, he, he, I, I, he taught me a lot of things about the ministry. He taught me more what not to do than what to do, but I learned a lot from him. He, he, he was invaluable to me, and I'll never, I'll never forget you know, all, all that he did for me, and he was good to me, and, and even though we differed on philosophy on a lot of things, I never, never, never did not appreciate what he had done for me. And he said something to me one time. I said a number of things, and I would jot him down as a young guy. And he said something one time that I never forgot. We were driving back from Springfield one night after he had preached down there, and I drove him down and back, and we'd talk, and I'd ask him all kinds of questions about the ministry and things like this and what was going on with this and that and all those things. And he'd, he'd, he'd tell me about it and talk to me about it. And he looked over one night, and he says, Bob, you know what? People will never remember what you did for them yesterday. They're only going to want to know what you're going to do for them today. That was one of the truest statements I ever met. You know what got Joe Ash in trouble? He forgot what God had done for him. And the reason why he did, he was never totally separated in the first place. Now, our second guy here that gets his name changed, he'd be number two on our you don't want to be here list. Is found in 2 Kings chapter 24 and again in Jeremiah chapter 22. Now, what you have in this second guy, and God changes his name, but again in a bad way. His name is Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim means Jehovah will establish. God changes his name to Kaniah, which means despised, broken idol. Bible says in 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 9, that he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. But over there in 2 Kings 24 through 12 through 14, he goes out to meet Nebuchadnezzar. And he too takes all of the furnishings and gold out of the temple, the holy thing, the dedicated thing, the things that were there because they belonged to God, and he just gave them. He gave them to Nebuchadnezzar. 
This guy is so vile and despicable to God that he not only changed his name, he takes him out of the line of Christ over there in Matthew chapter 1, and then he puts a prophecy against him that destroys the kingly line for the next 500 years till Christ shows up. He says in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 28 and 30, this man, Kaniah, a despised, broken idol, he is a vessel wherein there is no pleasure. Wherefore, they are cast out. He and his seed are cast into a land which they know not. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, write this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. For no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. He, right there, God cut the line of the kingly line. And he said, it's done. And there'll never be a king set on that throne that God will recognize till his son comes down in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and takes that throne. Now, do you know what the common thread was between these two guys? You know what the profile is here? If you're looking at those two guys, you want to, and you look at situations out there, a profile will be a common denominator, a thread that works its way all the way through, something that is consistent in everybody's life that is associated with this. And you know what the common thread is in this this pattern of these two guys' character? I mean, fundamentally, it's simple. It's a flawed value system. The holy things of God and his word meant absolutely nothing to them compared to things of the world. Now, I could preach on that for the next hour. God's people today, their problem is they have no value system. You know what's wrong with your children when you use your kids and they go this way? You fail to give them and teach them a value system. They don't understand. They're confused. They live in a world that is absolutely upside down. And they have no value system, nothing to go. To them, everything is blurred. They don't see. We don't do this. We don't see. We do this. They see it all mixed together. You know what's wrong with America? America has lost her value system. I have got bombarded this week, as you might well understand, with a Supreme Court decision to make gay marriage uh, across this country a national uh, pastime. (laughs) A hundred people have emailed me or called me on the phone wanting to know what I think about this. Obviously, it's... and, And in every case... I'm a little taken back, but I understand, you know, when something comes on. And, and I thought about it, you know. And I don't say a lot of things, times when things go on in the world. There are some preachers that all their sermons are is every Sunday morning they find some current event to preach on. That doesn't help you grow. That's just the fact that he doesn't want to prepare a sermon. He finds something that's nice and juicy, and there's enough people out there that want to hear nice, juicy stuff. So he gives them something, and then they call up all their friends and think what a great sermon was. Nothing for their spiritual growth, nothing for their spiritual life. But I need to tell you something. There are, there are times when a church needs to declare itself and make a stand and understand what the problem really is. So I have decided, in lieu of 1,000, 2,000, 4,000 emails I got this week, 10,000, I think, 
We're going to take a little break from Proverbs in the next couple of months. And I'm going to show you the real issue in America. I think it's a time for this church to understand some defining things. It isn't about what the Supreme Court did last week. That's nothing. I'm going to take you back and I'm going to show you the 18 steps that this country took long before it ever got to last week. 18 vital choices and decisions that this country made that put us where we're at today. You need to know these things. It's not a thing where you just go around and, and with the water cooler and talk about, wow, it's terrible, it's this or that, oh, it's what this country's coming to. What this country has come to took 18 steps downward. It just didn't happen. It just didn't wake up some morning and everybody think that, uh, you know, gay, lesbian is, is, is great and, and we're going we're gonna to go that way. No, no, there was a process. There was a downward staircase and there was 18 steps on that staircase. I'm going to take you through. I'm going to show you. I want you to understand so you can better be informed. We live in confusing times. We do. We got a, I got a, a white woman in NAACP who's confused and thinks she's a black woman. We got Bruce Jenner who is a man who's confused and thinks he's a woman. And then we got Barack Obama who's confused and thinks he's a leader. It's a confusing time today. And I want to kind of straighten it out for you. I'm not interested in anybody else out there. I'm interested in you being able to be able to talk to somebody intelligently and say, you know what, that's not the real problem. I want to show you where it really came from. So I'm going to show you. Take a little break and we'll, we'll do that and we'll go through it. And we'll see, because you need to see these things. Now I want you to see why these guys like this are a great character study. Now you got... Jehoash, J-E-H-O-A-S-H. Then you have Jehoiakim, J-E-H-O-I-A-C-H-I-N. In both cases, as in many cases in the Bible with the kings, you have their name starting out with J-E-H. J-E-H in the Old Testament is Jehovah. That's God's name. These men starting out had God's name associated with their name. God changed their name by taking his name out of their name. And took both guys out of the kingly line in Matthew chapter 1. On the spiritual picture, that'd be you and me at the judgment seat of Christ. Now that's a powerful thing right there. Two men who start out with God and end up without him. One starts out with fire for Jehovah, winds up being just fire. The other one starts out being God's going to establish him, winds up being a broken idol. And I want to say this, based on what I've already said. Some of you this year or next year will probably follow the same pattern. You see, right now, the Bible study used to be really exciting for you. Getting in the Word of God used to really be something you liked to do. You were in discipleship and you couldn't get enough. You were in all of this stuff and you were coming and getting involved. And now today, it's not as exciting as it once was. Some of your kids, and I'm telling you right now, just call me, oh, the great salami. You're going to have some issues. 
You know why? Because they're going to come out with a bad value system. It's not going to be clear to them. You're not making it clear to them what has to be of God, what is important to God, and what is okay over here, but you can't ever get the two together. I'm telling you. None of my business. I understand that. I understand that. I've had women all my life, and I get it all the time, you know. Uh, the people come to me, and they'll have lost their kids. Their kids are out in the world. Their kids are out there, you know, doing all kinds of things. And, and they always want to blame the church. They always want to blame somebody else, somebody in the church. I've had them say to me, you know, well, my boys, my, my kids don't come to church because, you know, somebody said something to them one time and, and made them mad, so they're not coming back. I've had them say to me, you know what, I'm going to go out and start my own church so my kids will come to church because they won't come to this church. And in both cases, it's absolutely stupid. You go out and start your church, and you know what, your kids don't come to that one either. And you can blame your kids' unspirituality or their worldly lifestyles on everybody else in the planet. But at some point in your life, you've got to come back and understand the reason why your kid is where they're at and doing what they're doing is they got a bad value system. I had a lady a couple months ago, she said, well, you know what, my daughter just is hanging out with this guy and he's a jerk and I don't understand why, you know, she sees him and he's such a jerk and he's 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 a jerk. I finally said to her, you know what, yes, he is a jerk, but who gave her the value system to hook up with a jerk? Comes back to us, folks. Comes back to us. I'm going to tell you something. In the world we live in today, and you better listen to me if you've got little kids. In the world we live in today, with what's going on, listen to me, you got one shot to get it right. One. Not two. Not three. They'll swallow them up. And the common thread will be a failed value system. Confusing. In the Christian's life, you have two vital keywords. One is proactive, that's getting ahead of the game, staying out in front. The other one is reactive. Let the situation get away from you and you try to catch up, and in most cases, that's impossible. And when it comes to your children, as I said, in this world we live in today, you got one shot to get it right. And a parent better be proactive Ahead of the game, understanding by the book and the character studies what's coming your way. Or you're going to wind up reactive. Now today we're going to move into another set of verses. And continue to look at this sub-theme here. And I think you'll find these very informative. This is probably going to be... uh, for the greatest principles uh, that you could ever get on your, your, your Christian life. Uh, Bible's filled with them. But Proverbs chapter uh, 12, verses 6 through 9 says this. The words of the wicked are to lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright shall deliver them. The wicked are overthrown and are not, but the house of the righteous shall stand. A man shall be com- uh, commended according to his wisdom, But he that is of a perverse heart shall be despised. He that is despised and hath a servant is better than uh, he that honoreth himself and lacketh bread. Now, Father, we thank you today. We come to you to ask you to give us what we need. 
We do love you. Thank you for these good people. May we glean today and learn today, Father, uh, through the great profile studies uh, of the men and women in the Bible. And help us today to put it all in our lives and to figure it all out and to give you the honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray and for his sake. Amen. Now verses 6 through 9 are a great set of principles on the life of a wicked man uh, and a righteous man. Also, we talked about a virtuous woman and a wicked one. Let's look at some of the things in these verses. Let's look at verse 6 first. It says, the words of the wicked are to lie in wait for blood. Now, verse 5, uh, the last time we were together, we saw the word deceit, deceitful. Uh, in the counsel of the wicked, are, there is deceit. We saw that last time. A wicked man or woman, when they want to deceive you, have an ulterior motive. They'll tell you what they think you want to hear to disarm you so they can later hurt you. And all the great singles examples of this will be in the Bible will be uh, David and Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 11 through 31. Lengthy section, but a great study of both characters. Saul, we know, is king over the nation of Israel, but he's a bad king. God anoints David as king while Saul is still yet on the throne. Now, the people love David. He's their champion. He went out and fought and killed Goliath, delivered Israel, while Saul was afraid. God gave David great victories and favor with all the people, and Saul gets jealous. And the root issue of Saul's problem with David, to see this verse unfold, is jealousy and envy. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 9, uh, says that uh, back in that day, of course we know they rode chariots, but they had bumper stickers. And on the bumper stickers of all the chariots, you find back there a little simple saying, and, it, it, and the, first, the first time Saul saw it, I bet he just, his, his blood blew out blood. But on that thing it said back there that Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. Don't you know when you're the king and you're already insecure about it, and you know that you and God aren't on the best of terms, and God just anointed somebody else king, and you're waiting for the other shoot, shoot the foot to fall, shoot to fall. When you're driving down the road and you see that bumper sticker and the chariot in front of you, that drive you over the edge. Saul makes David like one of his sons, and yet it's a deception. He plans to lure David into a false security, and then kill him. We all like the movie The Godfather, Don Coleone. The famous line we all remember that we all want to use and we all use used all the time and think about is the fact is simply that uh, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. That didn't start with Don Coleone. That started with Saul. Saul hates David. Saul wants to kill David. But he tries to deceive David by bringing David in as one of his sons, lavishing him and telling him how he loves him. All the time, he's planning to kill him. He does everything on the outside to make it look like he loves David, but on the inside, he hates him and his relationship with God, and he wants him dead. Now, let me show you the difference between the two characters. Saul hates him and wants him dead and can't kill him. 
God gives David two chances to kill Saul, chapter 24 and chapter 26, when he finds him in the cave. But David won't do it because he knows and follows the principles of the word of God where the Bible says, touch not the Lord's anointed. And he knows even though Saul's a bad king and a wicked king and is out of favor with God, that it's God's business to take care of Saul, not David's. Now there's two examples of a wise man, David, and a foolish man, Saul. Now in your life and my life, if you've ever attempted to do anything meaningful for God, you too will be hated and lied to and deceived by the Sauls of life. The first part of that verse says the words of the wicked are to lie in wait for blood. But look at the second part of the verse. But the mouth of the upright shall deliver them. Now two great applications here. Number one, historically, uh, in our study of David and Saul, is simply this. The mouth of the righteous here in David's case is Jonathan. Jonathan is Saul's son. Jonathan loves David while Saul hates David. Jonathan, if you study a little bit later on, Jonathan one time got a little bit of honey, tasted the honey, and the Bible says his eyes got enlightened, and he saw that the real problem was Saul. That's a picture of somebody getting into the Word of God, honey, getting a little honey in them, and then getting enlightened by it, seeing where the real problem is. And he protects David, and he warns him of the plan of his father to kill him, 1 Samuel 19, verses 1 through 3. Now, the second application will be the practical one for you and for me, but I wanted to give you the, the historical one. When you and I, as a wise man, follow the book, the Word of God, from the mouth of the upright, Holy Spirit of God, Lord himself, then the principles of that book will guide you and deliver you because it will reveal the deceptions and separate falsehood from truth. Sometimes the mouth of the righteous can be a person that God puts in your life, like your pastor or some leader in the church, somebody discipling you. You're a young Christian, you don't see it all yet, and they show you the Word of God and keep you from making bad choices and going where you shouldn't. If the Christian life is a warfare, and Ephesians chapter 6 says it is, then planet Earth becomes a huge minefield. For most of you that don't know what a minefield is, uh, it, it came into play uh, in World War II. They would take these little explosive devices and they'd bury them in the ground. And somebody would step on them and, you know, you didn't have to have soldiers within 100 miles and you could put out 20,000 mines and you got the potential of taking out 20,000 people. And during World War II, they came in all shapes and sizes. You had what they called uh, anti-tank mines that were huge, that a person could step on them and not set them off, but if a track vehicle went over, it would blow it up. You had some that were called anti-personnel mines that were much smaller. If a tank rolled over it, wouldn't do anything, but you step on it, you're in trouble. As they developed, they had what they called shoe mines. Shoe, because it blew your foot off. They had bouncing beddies. That when you stepped on it, come up about waist level and blue shrapnel in all directions. Not a good thing. The Germans laid over 200 million mines in Europe during World War II. Even to this day, long after 60, 70 years of the end of World War II, there's still farmland and woods over there where people don't go in, that they got to keep them out because there's still unexploded mines over there. Every once in a while, somebody gets killed. Some kid gets playing where he shouldn't and gets, gets blown up. But, and the world is filled with a minefield of people who lie in wait to deceive you and kill you spiritually. And the thing makes matters worse, it's in darkness. 
if it was one thing that the lights were on, it'd be something else you could see it. But the Bible says that this world is darkness. And that's why God gave you the word of God. That's why I preach to you about the principles. Psalm 119, 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, light unto my path. It shows you where the minefields are. So you don't have to step on them. Now look at verse 7. The wicked are overthrown and are not, but the house of the righteous shall stand. Now doctrinally here, so you get this down, if you don't have this in your Bible, the wicked overthrown here will be the Antichrist of the second coming of Christ, if you don't have that in. And the house that stands will be the house of the nation of Israel, just so you have that. But putting again in a practical application for you and me, when you do what's right and live right, and when bad, wicked things come your way, and they will, here's what you always want to remember. For a child of God, the wicked things will not come to stay, but the wicked things will come to pass. There'll be an end to it. Because evil will be overthrown. You and I can overcome the evil in the world today. Every righteous man in the Bible, when he goes through his testing, he comes out better than when he went in. Look at Job. Look at Abraham. Look at Joseph, Daniel, Paul, all of them. Every man and every woman in the Bible. Many times we forget when you look at the studies of these people, God used their adversity not only to get himself into position to do something great. And that's something we forget sometimes. God used Job to get himself into position to do what God wanted to do. God used Abraham to get him, God into position to do what he wanted to do with the nation of Israel. God used Daniel and his adversity to get himself lined up where he wanted to go with the Gentile nations. And Paul, God used his adversities for God to set himself up in position to bring about the church age. We forget that sometimes. But he also, at the same time, used it to build up and make them stronger than the people that were out to get them through the oppression. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17, I'm, verse, I'm sure most of you already have and probably memorized. It says, no weapon of war formed against you shall prosper. And everything that shall rise against thee in judgment shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Every weapon that the world tries to forge against you, if you use the principles of the word of God, if you use that book, The Lights and Perfection, if you follow the character studies and learn the patterns and the profiles of everything in life, no weapon will be formed against you because you'll have people all your life, I'm telling you, when you want to do what's right, who are going to hate you, try to hurt you, and you just stay by the stuff and you hold the line with the Word of God. God will deliver you and bless you and leave them to die in their own deceit and their own misery. They're out of fellowship. They're out of God's will. They're out of God's blessing, and they're miserable. Now look at the last part of verse 6. The house of the righteous shall stand. Now we know doctrinally that that's the house of Israel. But here I want to give you a cross-reference for this verse if you don't have it already. You want to put it back and forth here. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21. It says, There are many devices in the man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand then the only way that the righteous is going to stand is to get the right counsel. And that counsel is the principles that is the lamp under your feet, light under your path that keeps you from stepping on the minds that are going to blow your legs off. And in the Bible, your legs represent your walk with God. 
Now, the counsel of the Word of God will keep three things standing. And boy, these are important. First of all, it will keep the house of God standing. I don't care where the world goes. I don't care where it does, what it decrees, what the, 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 the Justice Supreme Court say or what the government says. It doesn't matter to me. It, it is what it is. I know for a fact that once you take the Word of God and make that your book and make it your absolute standard, then your church is going to stand. I'm not interested in getting a thousand people. I'm not interested in reaching the world. I'm just reaching, getting people to reach out and reach people one at a time. This house, this church, this body will stand. Then the second thing is your own personal family, your own personal house. As I said earlier, you live in a world, boy, where you've only got one chance to get it right. The devil will look for every opportunity to claim your children. You'll do something that looks like it's absolutely fine and absolutely okay, and there'll be kids out there that will pull them aside or influence them, or you'll get them to the place where they'll get confused about whatever is going on, and you're going to have some issues down the line, and they'll never say a word to you. But they're like a recording. They just soak it up and they take it. You may not see it manifest. Hey, I've dealt with kids when they were 18, 19 years old, and I tried to talk with them about what happened or what took place in their life. I dealt with a kid one time that was an alcoholic when he was 17 years old. Total alcoholic. And I talked to him and I said, man, why are you the way you are? I don't understand it. You got, you got all this going for you. How did you at 17 ever get to be an alcoholic? You know what he told me? He said, never. When I was a little kid every night, my dad would have a couple of bottles of beer before he went to bed. Couple of bottles of beer. No big deal. That's not drunkenness. That's not going out and going to a bar. I mean, I'm not saying it's right, but at least he brought it home and it was no, you know, and everybody around and him, it was no big deal. You see, he thought it was okay. Well, I'm just going to have a couple of beers. My kids are in bed. My wife's in bed. I've had a tough day. I'm going to sit back and I'm just going to have a couple of suds here. Uh, and I'm just going to, before I go to bed, help me to relax. Help me to calm down a little bit. But he left the beer bottles there by the couch. After he went to bed, that little kid drank it up there. And he was about five or six years old. He said he'd come out and he'd drain the suds out of that beer bottle that his daddy left. And daddy never knew it. Never knew it. Never knew it. The things that we think that we get away with that's okay, those kids see it, they tuck it inside, and boy, it comes back out later. The third thing is, it'll stand as your own body is God's house, your temple. What know ye not your temple is the, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. It'll stand. It'll stand through any test, through any adversity. It'll stand no matter what comes. And certainly, we're living in perilous times. But I'm telling you, you want to stand? You want to keep from getting your legs blown off or keep from getting spiritually killed? Get in the principles of the book. Right counsel from the mouth of the upright will always be proactive in your life. It'll always teach you to look ahead of the game. It'll always teach you to be ahead of the problems. It'll always give you the insight that you're always looking what's down the line and coming your way. For you, for your home, for your children. You'll be smart enough to know that, you know what, that may look okay, but I saw the end result in so-and-so's kid, and I'm not going to have that. And you're proactive in what you do. Most parents never are. They're chasing down the road trying to get back what they lost, and you never get it. You never get it. You get that right counsel through the Bible itself, through a good Bible-preaching, Bible-based church. You get it from men and women who believe the Bible and teach you the Bible through discipleship, discipleship one, who stand on the Word of God. Look at verse 8. A man shall be commended according to his wisdom, but he that is of a perverse heart 
shall be despised. Now that's a great verse. One man is commended, one man is despised. Have you ever noticed in life, if you've been saved for a number of years, five years probably or more or so, and been around, been involved, you see this, probably picking up on it. You see it all the time. Wicked people, wicked people will always despise the things a man does that are right when they're not right. You ever noticed that? That's been a phenomenon I've watched all of my life. I've watched some guy over there trying to do what's right, win people to Christ, do this, do that, try to help this, try to do that, try to help people, try to do whatever he can do. Women too. I've watched them do it. And I've watched some other Christian over there who never lift a finger, never did a thing, never did anything, never cared anything about spiritually. And for some reason, they have an axe to grind against that person. For some reason, they, they have nothing good to say about that person. That person is doing a thousand times more than they ever did in one minute of their entire miserable life. But that person is bad and they're good. They want to broadcast the concept, that's not real Christianity. I'm real Christianity. Ever see it? See it all the time. When you do, when you do right, you see, as we've seen in the Bible in 12.2 of Proverbs, you have favor of God in your life. That's the blessings of God. And a man who refuses to do right, yet professes himself as righteous, he can say that all he wants. He can reconstruct his life or she, and she can put on all the right things. But the thing that will be missing will be the favor of God. No blessings. No blessings in their life. No blessings in his ministry. No blessings in his family. All will be a disaster. When you see it, you learn from it. So he sees the man now who has the blessings of God, the favor of God. That he's been telling everybody else how wicked and wrong he is. And yet God keeps blessing the guy that he's saying is wrong. And he gets absolutely nothing from God. Absolutely nothing. It's a pure case of the character study of Joseph and his brethren. Joseph got the coat of many colors. His brethren got the sharp stick in the eye. Couldn't get a thing from the father. So then he despises the guy or the woman because of the blessings they have, the favor, and the fact that he himself has nothing but failure. Listen, with your life, you will either use it to help people or you're going to use it to hurt people. When you use it to help people, you'll get the favor of God and you'll be commended. When you get it to hurt people, you'll be despised. In this life, by the people you help, And a next life at the judgment seat of Christ. Look at verse 9. He that is despised and hath a servant is better than he that honoreth himself and lacketh bread. Now here comes another great principle on life. I love this one. You see, the man with a servant that's despised is better than the man who honors himself and has no bread. Looks like it doesn't make any sense. But I want you to see something here. You see... In both cases, they're both wrong. The first man is wrong and despised, but at least he makes no pretense of being right. The second guy is as wrong as the first guy, but the difference is here the second guy is full of pride. He honors himself. He puffs himself up. He's lifted up by his pride. He thinks of himself as some great person. He has totally deceived himself, portraying himself as some great spiritual person. But the Bible says he has no bread. He has no Bible. He has no truth. Both are wrong and both are deceived. 
But one is better than the other in one respect, that with the one, you see what you have. The other one is trying to deceive everybody and many times does. The example of this character study in the Bible is, again, Saul and David. They both sin. David sins or commits a sin that there's no sacrifice for, and the only penalty can be death, and yet he lives. Saul never killed anybody that you found in the Bible, never did anything on the par that David did, and yet God kills him. They both were wrong. And you're going to find in the Bible that God just looks at religious sins are dealt with a little more severely than just the fleshy sin. Now, that doesn't give anybody the right to say, well, that's good because I'm going to go out and sin. No, no. I'm not saying he won't pay a terrible price. But in Matthew 23, 14, the Bible does make it very clear that for false spiritual leaders who portray themselves to have the truth and preach the truth and deceive many people by not having the truth, the Bible says they get a greater damnation. He was speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. The Bible says that they go to the lowest hell, Deuteronomy 32. Man, what do you got with that? An elevator going down the floors? Somebody said, how? What's a lower hell? You know, to me, that's always been, I believe that it's there, but I, I don't get it. What's the difference of burning at 10,000 degrees or 100,000? It's still hot. I guess God got that figured out, though. Let me show you what I mean. You take a drunk. You're garden variety drunk. You take a dope addict. You take some worldly Christian. They're wrong, and they're in totally bad shape, and their life is going to be a disaster. I mean, they go around and posting their sin on Facebook. You see them and they do all that stuff like they're proud of it. I mean, some of these people embrace stupidity like it's a virtue. But at least you know what you got. In spite of his mommy always telling you what a good kid he is. Now, on the other guy, the other hand, a man who honors himself, he'll pretend he's right when he's not, and he's a real deception. He'll put out a false spirituality filled with pride, arrogance, always blaming others, never taking any responsibility. I've seen preachers that every problem they had in their church, they blamed on a person in that church. That pastor would never take responsibility for his inability to pastor, his inability to deal with issues. It was always somebody else's problem. He never understood that everything rises and falls on leadership and the buck stops with the guy in charge. He was always honoring himself. I've seen him get up and talk about how much they give to try to move other people to give. I've heard him get up and actually say, I got it on tape. Somebody gave it to a guy one time, talked about the fact that if you took all the money he gave as pastor of this church, you could buy a brand new car with it. Well, who cares? Who cares? God probably put you into a light pole with it. But we pretend. He'll pretend he's right when he's not. He'll pretend he knows the Bible right up to the point till he meets somebody that does. Game over. He goes around telling everybody how humble and spiritual he is, how he knows the Bible when he doesn't. But see, because he cloaks himself in self-righteousness, because he honors himself with a lot of religious stuff, and he talks the talk, He deceives people who have no discernment. And boy, it happens a lot. I always like the movies to equate them with things in Christianity. 
There's some great movies out there, if you just look at them, that they illustrate so many. And the movie I'm talking about right now, and I've never really seen it, but I, I've heard enough about it. It's called, some of you probably, and I don't think it's a bad movie, but I think it was called Dumb and Dumber. Is that the name of it? I think they made a sequel, which was Dumber Yet. I remember what... T- <laughs> I remember one time we were all at a we went to a, a movie to see something. This was a couple of years ago, and a gal that used to come to church here, and she is a she is a I mean God bless her. I, I hope she got saved, but she is without a doubt one of the biggest messes you ever saw in your life. I mean this girl, she has just got one problem after the other and won't do anything to do about it. She needs to do it, and uh, you know uh, so I happened to be at the movie thing, and and we were all waiting over there, and I we had just come out. And uh, they were going in, and I saw her over there uh, with her boyfriend. And uh, so I, I waited at her. She waited at her, and she would come over. She said, "Hi, Bob. How are you doing?" I said, oh, "I'm doing fine." She says, "Are you here to see a movie?" <laughs> no, no. We were going to buy a car, but they're all out. <laughs> we just came here because we like paying twelve dollars for a hot dog and four dollars for a bottle of water. That's all. I said, "Yeah, we came to the movie. You can tell where this is going." And she says, oh, what movie did you see? And I said, well, I forget what we just all went to see. And I said, did you see that movie? Were you in there? She says, oh, no, no. We're going to see Dumber and Dumbest, or Dumbest and Dumber. <laughs> and immediately I thought to myself, boy, that's good casting. That's a great movie for you. That's a great movie for you to go and see. The only person dumber than the man who honors himself will be the people who lack discernment who follow him. The book of Proverbs, the whole Bible, in every way, in every way you can lay it out and study it, will always give you the ability to be proactive in your life. And that is the key. You want to be with your family, with your wife, with your husband, in your world, if you're single, in your single life, you want to be proactive. You want to be use the Bible to see what's coming your way. You want to be able to sidestep the issues. Now, I'll be honest with you. There are some issues that will blindside you. I wish I could say that you'll never have to face or go through anything. That would not be the truth. There'll be many things in life that will come your way that you have no responsibility for that you will have to deal with. But you know what? Even in that, the Word of God will lead and guide you through those things. Even in that, the principles will be in your life to show you the falseness or the rightness or whatever you're dealing with. But you've got to come to the place in your life where you become proactive. You've got to look at things before they get there. There was a time in your Christian life when you could slip and slide and save for five. You can't do that today. The devil is right there in everything in your life. And if you don't hear anything else I'm saying to you, listen to me. The devil will not allow you to make many mistakes in your life. He will be there. He will throw things at you that you allow yourself to get into something. And before you know it, you're chasing after God. And when the complications come in and the compounding effect builds, you're never going to get out of it. It'll start with a bad choice. It'll start with something that you thought was absolutely okay. And the devil, because it's outside the value system of the Bible... Because it's taken the holy... Hey, there's some things in this Bible that are non-negotiable. There's some things in this Bible that you just don't take out of your life. 
There's some things in your Bible you don't say, oh, it's okay if I don't do that. There's some absolutely non-negotiable items in here. And when you violate those, you're a fool if you think the devil isn't going to capitalize on it. He's not going to say, oh, that's so-and-so. I'm not going to mess with him. Oh, that's that girl over there. I like her. I'm not going to mess with that. He's got one thing in mind. That is to destroy you and your family and everything about you. And you're not living in a day when you got to say, wow, we got to be careful. The house doesn't get on fire. You're living in a day the house is on fire. Going to burn to the ground. And it's that value system. It's that understanding that you be proactive in your life. You get the principles that tell you, don't step here. Don't go here. That's going to blow your legs off. That's going to kill you spiritually. And it all starts so innocent. And then it festers down inside and it comes out as a bad habit later or a stronghold or or something that takes over the life of a child or the life of a parent. I can tell you right now, I'm telling you, there isn't a kid on this planet, no matter where he wound up in life that was bad or whatever, that he didn't wind up there because at some place in his life, he either one never had one or two, never got the right value system. That is the key. And your child, I'm going to say it again, with your family, kids, you got, in the world we live in, you got one shot to get it right. One. One. That's all you got. Those principles will show you where you're headed and what's coming and warn you. Like that GPS in your car. That you made a wrong turn. On a dead end street. You forsake its principles. It's teaching. And you'll find yourself in life. Your children. Your marriage. Trying to catch up. And you'll be, uh, be, uh, be reactive. And never get back. You'll never get caught up. I used to have a friend of mine. I haven't seen him for years. But he was a pilot. And he was probably flew little planes you know. And I'm leery of little planes, and I'm leery of pilots who fly little planes, and I'm sure there's some good ones out there. But I don't know. Probably just me. I just feel safer in a big plane with 300 people. Probably because if we die, we all go together, and then I'll by myself. But he was a good pilot. Very good pilot. Very cautious. Didn't take any chances. And uh, it was a thing where uh, I, I felt very comfortable flying with him. And when I would go around to these churches, uh, you know, and, and, and try to get him, help him back, this is years ago, he'd always fly me there. He loved to do it. And we had a good relationship. And I really, one of the, one of the sweetest, most godly men I ever met. He's a missionary now. And uh, he, 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 we'd fly, and we'd sometimes have to fly for a couple hours to get where we're going. One of the little Cessnas, you know, that puddled along about 90 miles an hour, you know, but it, it got you there. And, uh, but he always would tell me, he always told me uh, that the, 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 the hardest part of flying, once you got the fundamentals down, was landing. And he said, the reason why that is, he says, because landing is such a, a, a crucial thing. He said, when you're taking off, he said, that's a dangerous time, but you're going up. 
And he says, unless you just really do something stupid, he says, you're going to keep going up, and you got a chance to correct it. But he says, when you're coming, and when you're flying, he says, you're up 5,000 feet or whatever. He says, you're just flying along, you know, and he says, you've got a lot of time to, 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 to react to things. But he says, when you're landing, when you're landing, he says, and he, this was his phrase. I never forgot it. He says, when you're landing, he says, you always got to be ahead of the plane. Always got to be ahead of the plane. He says, when you're making your downwind turn and come in, he says, you've got about eight or nine things you've got to do almost simultaneously to get that plane on the ground. He says, you have to be thinking through those things long before you have to do them. You have to be preparing your mind and you have to be ahead of the plane. Proactive is what he was saying. He says, when that plane turns in, the final leg to come down, <clears throat> you've got to make sure that everything is the way. And there's, he went through the list, and it was an amazing list of things that's got to be right <clears throat> on that plane when it lands. And he says, the key to flying a plane when you land is staying ahead of the plane. He says, you've got to be ahead of what's happening. You can't be catching up. You can't be almost to the ground and realize your flaps are not where they're supposed to be or your landing gear is down. Or your power is too hard. He said, you gotta, you got to be ahead of the plane. And after years thought about that, boy, that is so true in the Christian life. Not losing control. There'll be times when five or six things will have to happen almost simultaneously in your life. And you have no control over it. And the only way you can keep from crashing and burning is to stay ahead of the game. Stay ahead of the plane. Be proactive. Know what's coming. Know how to deal with it. Know how to face with it. And go on from there. And it's the, it's the Bible's the same way. You take it and you learn the principles and you become proactive. You take the character studies and you look at them, you study them, you glean out of them the things about yourself, then you apply it to others, and then you see how it all plays out from there. Well, we'll hold up there. Now, let me tell you this. In lieu of 